Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Wednesday morning and welcome to Tech Check, our new show about technology here on CNBC. I'm Deirdre Boza with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort and Julia Borston here with us as well. A big day for tech news. Netflix shares plunging as the company's growth slows. Is this a bump in the road or a sign of something amiss for the company? Plus, how Apple makes money. New products, new services, the prices and the cut that Apple takes is in focus for us today. And speaking of Apple, a hacking group is threatening the company, vowing to release confidential corporate documents unless it receives $50 million. John? Stocks, meanwhile, broadly recovering from a string of losses. The S&P up three-tenths of a percent. Netflix, as Deirdre just mentioned, by far the biggest laggard on the S&P and NASDAQ. Fang broadly lower. Facebook and Alphabet off by more than a percent. And another stay-at-home winner, Peloton, is down again today. That stock's lost 15% in a week, Carl. Yeah, John, as you point out, most important thing this morning, Netflix shares were down as much as 13% after the print, currently down almost eight. That's about a three or four week low. One of the most important stories in tech today, obviously. Julia is going to break down uh, what we knew from the quarter and what they're saying about the current one. Hey, Julia. Well, Carl, Netflix's results show the ongoing impact of COVID. Far lower than expected user growth shows that the user surge we saw last year was pulling for growth that the company could have seen this year. And that fewer new shows this past quarter due to COVID-related production delays boosted the bottom line in the quarter, but also depressed user growth. Now, take a look at this chart of user growth uh, over the past year and a quarter. Now, the first quarter of last year, the company added a record 15.8 million subscribers, then 10 million subscribers in the second quarter of last year. Now, in the first quarter of this year, the company added fewer than 4 million subscribers and forecast the addition of just 1 million subscribers in the second quarter. Also, look at the domestic market and how that is maturing. Now, this was the third straight quarter of under 1 million net additions in between the U.S. and Canada. Canada. Now, this all just points to how important international markets are for Netflix's growth going forward and also how important it is that the company keep churning out more hits. That's why the company is spending $17 billion on content this year. That's up from just under $12 billion last year and about $14 billion in 2019. Now, the company says it expects growth to accelerate in the second half when it comes to those subscriber numbers as it launches more series and original movies, Carl. But uh, the analysts are still optimistic. I have to note that about three quarters of analysts still have a buyer overweight rating on the stock. 
Yep, and we're going to talk to one in a minute. Uh, I see Stiefel went to a buy. You know, yesterday at this time, Julia, we talked about going into the print uh, with some pretty uh, muted expectations. We talked about potentially a crackdown on password sharing, which apparently Reed Hastings has very little interest in. I wouldn't say he has a little interest in I would say that they want to be careful about cracking down on password sharing. They were asked a question about what they're planning to do about password sharing. And they said they didn't want to be seen as turning the screws on, on people who use the service. But at the same time, they want to make sure that people who are watching are paying. So I think we might see some more options in terms of maybe they'll offer an additional stream or two if you pay for the middle tier of Netflix, which now offers four streams. Um, but I think they want to tread carefully here because they don't want to alienate people who maybe they'd like to rather convert them to being subscribers rather than uh, sending them over to the competition entirely. <laughs> Right. Julia, you mentioned uh, that content spend. We, it seems like every year we see these huge jumps. How important do you think profitability is to Wall Street versus those subscriber numbers, which were so focused on? I mean, earlier Netflix said that it expects to break even on a cash flow basis this year. Is that still going to be key for, for the street? Look, I think this is a company that's very much in growth mode. There was a big earnings beat this past quarter, but I think the fact that the company did give that guidance for that cash flow break even, I think that's something that Wall Street's going to be focused on. But this is a company with massive international potential. Yes, we are seeing that domestic growth slow, um, but the company has pointed out that it has less than 10% of total video subscribers in, in this space. So there is so much room to grow, especially overseas. Here, the market is more saturated, but I think that's where they're going to be investing their resources in terms of original content, in terms of marketing, really getting the word out in these markets, including Asia, um, as well as Europe. So a lot of potential international and and this is just being you know really treated as a growth opportunity still especially by all these analysts including one you have coming up well it's where we're going to start with our next guest uh, evercore's mark mahaney can walk us through what he thought of the quarter uh, mark great to have you back good morning good morning carl uh, you know, last week, uh, a lot of the coverage was about uh, the balance sheet getting better, building cash, potentially creeping toward investment grade, long-term positive dynamics. Was any of that undone last night? Uh, a little bit. Every time you go through a Netflix earnings, you should ask yourself, are you more or you're less confident on subs growth, margin expansion, and ARPU, uh, the revenue that they can get per user? And I thought the big question mark really was the subs that came out of last quarter. They showed record high uh, margins. Uh, ARPU growth expanded despite the fact that they're mixed shifting uh, towards um, the ARPU growth. Uh, there was ARPU growth despite the fact that they're mixed shifting towards uh, lower paying um, uh, markets or economies. So you got two out of three things right. And our view on the subs numbers are you are going to have pull forwards. It is impacted by the content slate. The stronger the content slate, the better the sub numbers, the weaker the content slate, the softer the sub numbers. But long term, this market, the entire entertainment market is moving towards streaming and it's moving towards a streaming bundle. And Netflix is almost certainly going to be part of that. So if I'm going to be soft in some place, I think they can make up for it later on with subs. That's why we like this as an entry point. This isn't the back of the truck price, but it's a back of the minivan truck. Uh, <laughs> now, Mark, I know uh, nobody fan price. Yeah, no, nobody likes to go bearish if you've been bullish in a situation like this. But to me, we, we've talked about the Netflix angle on Netflix. But what about the broader idea here that, you know, that thing that you, you thought was momentum? Oh, well, it was just a pull forward. What if you extrapolate that out to so many of the other stocks 
that you cover. I mean, you know, what if they said, oh, yeah, you know, I know we've been talking about that, you know, COVID changed everything and it's a transition to digital. But that boom that we saw, a lot of that was just to pull forward. And now we're lowering our guidance for the coming quarters. Wouldn't that be a concern? And how do you know that we're not going to hear more of this? Uh, we don't know. It's possible, uh, uh, John, that we'll see something like that. We've got other assets that we think were clear winners of a permanent pull forward of demand. I think that's Amazon and some of the advertising names. Uh, but it's possible that they'll, we're going to hear the same script going forward. I don't think that's likely, but it is possible. And there's no, there's no doubt that there was a huge bump up in new subs for Netflix last year. There was going to be a little bit of a trade-off. The good thing for stock pickers at this point is you just passed the toughest comp quarter for Netflix. The comps get easier going forwards. And when a company talks about accelerating sub ads in the back of the half of the year, that's what's going to cause the stock to start grinding or gapping up, depending on the order of magnitude of that acceleration in the back half of the year. Mark, good morning. Given fierce competition, I know that Netflix last night said that it wasn't competition weighing on those numbers, but we can see this happening. We can see content spend increasing. Should Netflix be focused on profitability? Is that calculus changing, do you think, for Wall Street? Should it say, okay, be in growth mode again, invest money back into the business to fend off the other players in this space? Does Wall Street sort of need to adjust their thinking on on that metric? Well, I guess the way that the, Deirdre, the way the stock is trading, it's clear that the street puts um, growth over profitability because you had record margins, but the stock traded off. So growth still matters. Subs is still the single most important metric for Netflix. I think it's going to be that way for a long period of time. The company has shown the ability to march up margins. The question is, can they continue to add 20, 25 million new subs a year going forwards? And maybe they get a little past this year, a little past this year, maybe 20, maybe it's high teens sub ads, but we're going to expect them to get back to that mid 20 sub ads uh, post this competition where it shows up is where we're not going to really be able to track it. It's going to be in the 90% of the sub ads that come from outside the U.S. So it's markets like the Philippines and Turkey and Japan and Korea and India. And that's where Netflix faces a lot of competition, but much less so that we, than, than the ones that we focus on here. You have a Disney global presence, but no, really none of the other assets that we talk about in this market have that kind of global presence. So they're really taking on local champions in each of those markets. Hey, finally, Mark, you know, we're going into Oscar weekend. Um, They do have 36 nominations, two up for Best Picture. How should viewers think about uh, the degree to which Netflix is is accepted among the artistic community and whether or not that's transferable to the stock? I I think it's uh, it transfers not so much in terms of the Oscar wins, although those help, but in terms of the commercial wins. So if they can show that their shows get 40, 50, 60, 70 million people watching it in the first, uh, you know, 40 days, 30 days of the launch. That tells the the people who are creating the content and the big actors and the big producers and the directors that you want a distribution. You actually can get just as much global distribution going through streaming, whether it's Netflix or another service. And you can every theater. The last 12 months, wake up call. You want distribution? You can get it via streaming. It's not a niche market anymore. That's the real win for Netflix, that the content companies are bringing their scripts to Netflix. They've, had, they've been in this position now for a year, and it seems like it's getting stronger. Mark, great analysis. Uh, fascinating. Uh, very layered story uh, coming out of the quarter. Appreciate it, as always. Mark Mahaney. Thank you, Carl. Guys, that ties into today's crowdsource. Those disappointing Netflix numbers got us thinking, 
what can or should Netflix do to boost growth once again? Tweet us your ideas. We've also added a QR code on the bottom left of your screen, which goes right to our Twitter page. Some discussion of video games on the call last night. What else do you think that Netflix could do? Additional revenue streams, perhaps. We will show the best responses at the end of today's show, John. Yeah, speaking of additional revenue streams, another big tech story today, the implications of Apple's product announcements at its spring-loaded event. We got a lot of updates, iPad Pros with M1 processors and 5G, M1 iMacs with new designs and a range of colors, and AirTags, little trackable buttons that use wireless technology to help you find stuff you've lost. And beyond hardware, Apple also laid out a plan for podcast subscriptions, and Apple's not shy about taking its cut of that podcast sub-revenue here, and that's where we're going to start with the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stern. Um, Joanna, I don't blame Apple for taking 30% of podcast subscription revenue in the first year, but I'm not sure I would trust them to provide more than a storefront here. They have ruled the roost in podcasts pretty much since they became a thing, and they've largely ignored it, failed to innovate, promised we're going to give all these tools to podcasters, and I think largely... It's been weak. Uh, Would you trust them to innovate here now? I mean, I wouldn't say this is much of an innovation. I agree with you here, right? It's subscriptions, giving creators of podcasts the uh, the opportunity to charge uh, for their podcasts rather than rely on ad revenue. What this really is, is the heating up again of the war between Apple and Spotify. Spotify has been dominating in podcasts. Uh, They've done, they've acquired some companies in the podcast area. They are innovating in product in podcasts. That's not what Apple's been doing, right? It's sort of like you said, the, the podcast app is sort of languishing. It's kind of one of the worst podcast apps you can have on the iPhone. Right. And Joanna, look at Spotify's strategy here. They've been paying big money for talent names like Joe Rogan. And they've a lot of them have been coming off of the Apple podcast platform. Do you think that we're about to see Apple start to spend more on this kind of talent? Would they be spending on certain studios or platforms? What do you think? It wouldn't surprise me. I think also looking at the Apple TV Plus strategy is is actually a smart thing to do here as well. The focus on high quality versus quantity. I mean, it's different, of course, because Apple is a major podcast distribution platform, but I could see them going that route as well. Joanna, they've always, you know, uh, in their announcements have done animations of the inside of the hardware. Uh, but I don't know if I've ever seen them play up the M1 quite like they have about the about the insides in prior uh, rollouts. I just wonder, are consumers being conditioned now to go into a store and say, I want the M1 thing? I mean, I was fascinated about how much time and how much drama and uh, showmanship there was around the M1 yesterday. I mean, Tim Cook pulled off a mask. Uh, he, he, there, there was this whole interlude. I don't know if you guys have footage of this. There's an interlude where Tim Cook is an imposter and he's stealing the M1 chip from the Macs and putting it inside the iPads. And it was clever, but it's a lot of attention on the M1, which really signals how important it is to Apple that they are controlling the entire hardware software services stack. I mean, they made a lot of interesting points yesterday around how this all works well together. Even if you look at the products that were not M1 based, you saw the AirTags and uh, the Apple TV all relying on other Apple products, right? Relying on the iPhone. So this is all part of the ecosystem. Apple controls it all. Apple controls it. And that's their message. 
Uh, yeah, we got you turning into an icon there. Uh, let's see if we get uh, Joanna's video back, guys. But this reminded me of classic Apple, the M1 Focus. Uh, back when Phil Schiller and Steve Jobs would get on stage and, and talk about the Power Mac chip versus Intel. And, you know, Joanna was with us and talking about this yesterday. The idea that it's, it's unclear, Carl, uh, where the iPad Pro fits versus the Mac. It, it got even muddier for me yesterday because they're rolling out these iPad Pros now with the M1 chips in them. And the iMac also has the M1 chip and so does the uh, MacBook Air, etc. It's like, well, how is the iPad Pro more than a MacBook Air without a keyboard on it? And so which one should I buy? I'm, I'm very unclear. It takes me back to when Tim Cook was saying that a touchscreen computer is like uh, a refrigerator toaster. It seems to a degree like Apple's making refrigerator toasters, and one's a little bit more like a toaster, and the other one's a little bit more like a refrigerator. But, hey, maybe it's what people are demanding, and uh, it's what'll <laughs> well, sell. What's cheaper? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, what is... One is cheaper, that is for sure. Uh, I guess it's a first-class, uh, first-world problem if you're Apple, right, to have that kind of layering within the product uh, the stack. Uh, we'll talk more about it after a break, and our thanks to Joanna Stern of the Wall Street Journal. By the way, this uh, $29 billion robotics IPO, uh, but it's not these robots. It's software automation. The CEO is coming up next. We're just getting started here on Tech Check. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EatonVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Time for a gut check on chips. We don't talk about this one enough. Semiconductor manufacturing supplier ASML Holdings in the green after an earnings beat. Forecasting strong demand in the shortage. Full year sales growth projected up 30%. Lamb Research also getting a boost this morning. One of the top NASDAQ 100 gainers. Alongside Applied Materials with both names up for the year. Deirdre. Well, John, UiPath is set to go public on the NYSE today. A CNBC disruptor. It makes software robots that 
automate mundane office tasks. The technology allows employees to customize AI capabilities rather than engineers or developers. Ticker is P-A-T-H. And it priced above its range with a valuation near $30 billion. Joining us now is CEO and co-founder Daniel Dines. Daniel, good morning. Thank you for being with us and congrats on this milestone. Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting us. Of course. Now, Daniel, you don't have the typical Silicon Valley or startup story. You grew up, started the company in Romania. You once said no to a billion dollars from Masa San. So what is the capital going to allow you to do today that it wouldn't have earlier on in UiPath's story? We have a vision to accelerate human achievement. And this capital is going to help us to continue on our vision to invest heavily into research and development, into our go-to-market. And I believe that uh, we can build a generational company that will completely shape uh, the way people work. Right. And, you know, cloudware, I, software, excuse me, and cloud uh, listings have been very hot over the last year or so. Notably, you guys priced this IPO lower than your last private valuation, which was about $5 billion higher than your IPO price set yesterday. I'm seeing that your latest range is between $62 and $64, about a 14% premium. Talk a little bit about the thinking. Were you worried about leaving money on the table by pursuing especially a traditional IPO when many companies these days are looking at direct listings? Well, we thought uh, quite a long time if we have to do a traditional IPO or a direct listing. But we believe this is uh, still a great market to raise capital. It's uh, a bit of a choppy market, but we are uh, one of the unique companies that uh, got a lot of attention from uh, the investors. I can tell I enjoyed quite a bit uh, understanding how the IPO process works. I am... Uh, happy with the price that we got uh, on our float. I'm really happy with the investors that uh, we were able to attract in the company. And uh, I think our price market adjusted was actually higher than the last round. Right. Um, But you weren't worried, Daniel, about leaving money on the table. I mean, you're one of the few software companies to you know, price at sort of a more reasonable range. And we've seen the likes of Snowflake, C3, AI, you know, really, really jump on their debuts. I think on on all uh, rounds of investments, you might uh, leave money on the table. And I don't think this is the main question here. The main question is, can you attract the best partner in the cap table? Are they long-term investment? Are they going to sustain the company over a long time or not? That's a fair point. And as I mentioned at the top, you did say no to a billion dollars from Masasan once. Um, let's talk about the business. Last year, you were able to grow revenue by more than 80 percent. How much of that was due to the pandemic and the need for by corporations to automate more tasks? And how much does that have to do with companies inside and outside of tech already leaning further into robotics? Well, I would say that from a revenue perspective, the pandemic was uh, net neutral to us. We've seen uh, 
solid growth in industries like uh, financial sector, like healthcare, public sector went uh, pretty well for us. But of course, other industries like travel, like retail, were the most affected and uh, they slowed down a bit their investments. But I would say that uh, the awareness of digital transformation and uh, the position of automation as the cornerstone technology to power up the digital transformation strategies has increased 10 times. And we have achieved a clear market leading position. And we, this is a great momentum when many of our customers are making three to five years decisions and uh, we are accelerating actually and we are poised to get uh, a bigger market share. Right, so Daniel, can you sustain this kind of growth? What are you anticipating? And I know that you guys have been cutting losses as well. Do you anticipate that trend to continue? How important is profitability to you? Yeah, we, we continue. We always have invested heavily into our growth. In the same time, we uh, learn how to operate this company with rigor. And uh, our long-term strategy is durable growth and uh, operational efficiency. We intend to drive this company for, uh, you know, next few years into the net cash flow neutrality while uh, providing really durable and sustainable growth. Uh, Daniel, practical question for you here. You got started in Bucharest, but now you're based in New York. So this is kind of a big, another big uh, IPO, tech IPO moment for New York. What's your strategy when it comes to locations uh, and physical facilities, how and where employees are going to be working from here? Well, we have started out of Romania, and that uh, was an advantage because we uh, thought on a global expansion since day one. So we expanded uh, in the last four years on all three major continents, we have bases uh, all across the world with large bases in Tokyo, in Seattle, in New York, in Bucharest, in Bangalore. So we, we have a few centers. I believe that we are heading maybe into a mixed environment. We, uh, we were prepared really from day one to operate as a completely remote company. But also nowadays, I believe that uh, really there is uh, a lot of uh, value into meeting people in person. So truly, we will, uh, we will try to offer the best facilities to our employees and give them the best mix between the freedom of working home and the joy of working with their colleagues you know, on our sites. Yeah, that hybrid model that many CEOs are looking at as they think about the future of work. Daniel, congrats again, and thank you so much for being with us today. Daniel Dines, UiPath CEO and founder. Thank you so much. Coming up this morning, hackers are asking Apple to pay up big or face one of the biggest leaks in the company's history. We've got that story later this hour. Speaking of Apple, top analyst Katie Huberty of Morgan Stanley has high confidence going into earnings next week. She literally says the company is firing on all cylinders. For more of her comments, subscribe to CNBC Pro at CNBC.com slash pro. More on tech valuations after the break.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. We're recovering from a couple days of losses, although the major indices, Dow S&P, still on track for the biggest weekly loss in a couple of months. NASDAQ's up half a percent. Netflix, the big decliner. Tesla up about half a percent. Let's get a CNBC News update. Rahel Solomon has that for us. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning, everyone. Less than a day after the guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, the Justice Department is announcing a sweeping investigation into policing practices in Minneapolis. The trade group for the major global airlines lowering its forecast for international air travel this year now expects global traffic will hit 43 percent of pre-pandemic levels. That's down from a 51 percent estimate back in December. As interest rates fall to a two-month low, weekly mortgage demand has jumped nearly 9 percent. It's the first increase in weekly mortgage applications since the end of February. And the Soccer Super League has all but imploded. Only two of the original 12 teams remain. FC Barcelona and Real Madrid. The remaining teams face strong opposition from many fans and even some players. But, John, you have to wonder if they, I don't know, conducted any focus groups because <laughs> support has not been on their side. Yeah, yeah, not, not a good reception at all, Rahel. Uh. But you were up to date. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's also been a mixed bag for Fang in 2021 so far. Alphabet's the only big outperformer versus the S&P. Famous value investor Bill Miller discussed the trade on the exchange. Take a listen. There's some valuation discrepancies in the overall market. I mean, I, I think that the big names, the big, the big Fang stocks are all pretty attractive. But attractive. something like um, attractive, yeah. You know, Amazon, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook. You know, we, we own them. If we don't own Apple anymore. We should have we should have kept it. But, <laughs> but I think I think they're all fine. Our Dom Chu joins us now with more on what's, well, relatively cheap in tech. (laughs) On the other hand, right, there's always a a, a trade to be made, relative winners, relative losers, what's cheap, what's expensive. We'll take a look overall in technology because we looked at technology and communication services, two of the bigger sectors in the S&P 500. Within that particular realm, cloud computing, Internet-related stocks and semiconductors have stood out as real outperformers over the last year. You can see up 65%, 68%, and almost a double for the semiconductors on a one-year basis. The reason why I'm showing these three is because each of these three, over the course of the last few weeks here, has now pulled back from the highs that we've seen. The, each of these is sitting right around their 50-day average price. So, again, just at or below that pullback, maybe some relative weakness on an otherwise very strong trade. Take a look, at though, at some of these individual names that have been real outperformers within technology and communication services. Look at the big names, IBM, Oracle, and NVIDIA. Each of these stocks is trading roughly 9 to even 14% above their 50-day average price. That's a trend indicator for the medium term. So these have now broken out to, in some way, a little bit above where their trend line has been. So keep an eye on those as relatively maybe more expensive given where they've been. And then check out these other ones that have been underperformers within that realm of tech and comm services. We're talking about social media, Twitter, also Disney and Netflix. Each of these is now 3 to 4% below their average trading price during that same span as well. So keep an eye on media stocks within that. And by the way, 
Bill Miller mentioned those big names, the consequential ones within the S&P 500. Take a look at names like Apple, also Microsoft and Amazon and Alphabet. Each of these is now roughly 5 to 7% above their 50-day average price. So when it comes down to it, Deirdre, there is real relative strength still in certain parts of technology and communication services. That might be what's keeping the markets at or near the record highs. We'll see if that trend continues. Deirdre, back over to you. Yep. Great context, Dom, as we head into earnings season, too. Meanwhile, Apple is facing off with a ransomware gang. We will get to that story next. And don't miss Tech Check's free Oscar party live on CBC.com, LinkedIn, YouTube. This Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern, I'll be co-anchoring alongside Julia Borston with a star-studded cast discussing Hollywood and the future of entertainment. We are back in just two minutes. What should Netflix do to boost subscribers? Still time to chime in on Twitter. Your ideas later this hour. And next, Amazon and Dish teaming up on 5G. That news has Dish up nearly 5%. We will talk to the man behind that deal and why some say it could be a nightmare for names like Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T if they can't keep up. Stay with us. Apple's caught up in a hacking problem related to one of its suppliers, and the hackers are now demanding payment. Our Eamon Javers has details on that. Hi, Eamon. Yeah, hi, Carl. It's a company called Quanta that's a supplier to Apple and other companies around the world. They're Taiwan-based. And what Quanta has been, what's happened here to Quanta is that some of their data has been exfiltrated by a hacking group called R-Evil, which has now posted some of that data on the dark web. Here's the note uh, that R-Evil put up on the Internet. Uh, they say, today, we, the R-Evil group, will provide data on the upcoming releases of the company so beloved by many. Tim Cook can say, thank you, Quanta. Now, we've gone on the dark web and had a source provide us with some of these documents. These are the internal documents from Quanta that appear to show the Apple logo on products being uh, developed right now. I don't want to get uh, too detailed on those because uh, presumably there's a possibility, at least, that this is stolen intellectual property that is now circulating on the dark web. So a challenge for both Quanta and for Apple in terms of how to respond to this. The hackers are demanding ransom be paid by May 1st. No indication of whether the companies uh, will pay that ransom or not. The hackers are threatening to release more data day by day between now and then. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we're getting news now from the Department of Justice on a related topic, saying that the Department of Justice is going to establish a ransomware task force at the federal government designed to get its arms around all this because there are corporate security issues here. And, of course, there are national security issues here. This may not be a conventional piece of wisdom, but I did talk to one cybersecurity group this morning who was speculating that this particular piece of ransomware, uh, this particular attack may be a response to the U.S. sanctions on Russia uh, just last week. So there's some question about how much companies are being caught in the crossfire here of the sanctions uh, and the back and forth diplomatic tussle between the United States and Russia. But meanwhile, for Quanta and for Apple, the bad news is these documents are now circulating on the internet. Uh, people can go look at them. And the threat is that there's more to come, guys. Back over to you. Hmm. Amen. a couple of questions. I guess one is uh, what kind of precedence is there around obviously companies that uh, are leveraged highly to their intellectual property. And is there the sense that we're going to see more episodes like this if the crossfire that you're talking about continues? Yeah, you know, we talked to a cyber consultancy called Arate a couple of weeks ago who told us that tech companies actually are the companies that are paying the most in ransom because they're so dependent on that intellectual property. So we are seeing 
hundreds of millions of dollars being paid from American corporations straight to criminal gangs, sometimes through intermediaries who handle the negotiations for them. Uh, but the money is going right from corporate America to the criminal underworld. Oftentimes, uh, these entities, like our evil allegedly is, are based in Russia and have the sort of de facto protection of the Russian government, Carl. Eamon, you've been reporting, uh, doing a great job reporting on these ransomware attacks for ages. And it's notable that uh, finally we're getting a ransomware task force. Is it seen as late? Do we think that they're going to be very effective? Well, look, something is better than nothing, right, from the perspective of those companies who are being victimized. You know, and the talk in this world always is on how do you get a better public-private partnership uh, between the government and the private sector. This will probably go a long way to making some of that more seamless. Uh, but you do get the sense that there's this massive escalation right now in ransomware. Uh, the country doesn't really have its arms around it. <clears throat> the corporate sector doesn't really have its arms around it. Uh, and the criminals are, are making out like bandits here. Uh, and the, the, the challenge for individual executives and leaders around corporate America is, do you pay these bad guys or not to get your data back? If you're Tim Cook now, do you lean on this supplier and say, you know what, you guys have got to pay them. We can't afford to have any more of these documents circulating on the open internet. Uh, or do you say, you know what, we're just going to take, uh, take a beating here and hunker down and, and try to ride this thing out. That's a really tough decision for executives in, in any type of company. Yeah. Amen. Thanks. Uh, I imagine yeah. Apple, with as much money and as many secrets as they have, are not eager to create a market for that. Um, right. We'll see. Eamon, thank you. Uh, now Amazon Web Services and Dish teaming up to build a cloud-based 5G network. Las Vegas is going to be the first city to see that network deployed. David Brown is the VP of Amazon Elastic Compute Cloud, EC2, joins us now. Um, David, so interesting. I, I talked to Mark Huan, uh, the chief network officer over at DISH said that you've been working on this for a year and a half. How big a disruption do you think this technology can be in cutting costs and adding flexibility to 5G? Well, thanks, John, and it's great to be on TechCheck. Um, you know, absolutely. We're, we're super excited about what we're doing with DISH. And in terms of how big a disruption, I think, you know, we've seen what the cloud has done to technology over the last 16 years um, and just how it's been able to cut costs for companies and allow them to innovate at a pace that they just haven't been able to do before. And you've seen that happen industry by industry by industry. And you know, the telco is really an industry that we haven't actually seen the sort of innovation that we believe is possible and transformation that's possible from the cloud. And so I think DISH taking the first step here and saying that they're going to build the world's first a public cloud 5G network completely on AWS is really the start of a lot of transformation to come in the industry. So we're very excited about where it's going to go. But how does it happen? Because a lot of the carriers have sunk costs. They've got these, this legacy equipment. It hasn't certainly been on the public cloud. How is that transition going to work? Or are you just going to kind of scare them into the public cloud camp? Well, well, obviously, that's one of the advantages that DISH has. DISH doesn't have any network or legacy infrastructure today that they have to worry about. So they really have the benefit of being able to build a completely new network and think about it in ways um, you know, that, that traditional carriers haven't been able to do. Um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation that's going to happen between AWS and DISH. And there's a whole partner ecosystem as well, you know, from providers like Ericsson and Nokia and Altiostar and Avenir. And we're working closely with all of them. And I think that's going to drive an enormous amount of innovation. And we also work very closely with the Verizons of the world, the Vodafones of the world, SKT, KDDI, telecoms all around the world. 
And I think you're going to see some of that transformation as well. They're constantly looking at their new network builds. They're looking at how they're going to do things differently. And I believe there's, if there's an opportunity for them to be able to leverage a cloud provider with something that they believe will give the right performance and latency um, and, and innovation for their end customer, it's definitely something they would look at and find a way to do. David, so often with 5G, I hear that, yes, in a lot of Western countries, certainly in the U.S., there, there's all this legacy equipment, there's extensive LTE, you know, 4G, et cetera. But then in some other markets, they're coming into 5G more fresh. So is this DISH partnership going to be sort of a case study for you guys to say, look, here's how it can work and maybe go into some of those markets and use it to sell the idea of 5G built on a public cloud? Absolutely. I mean, I think working with Dish, like I said earlier, you know, we have this incredible opportunity to do something fresh. It's a greenfield telco. Um, and so I think it's going to allow us to innovate rapidly together and do things that just haven't been possible elsewhere. And I think that's going to signal to other you know, countries, as you say, where the other greenfield telcos or maybe where, you know, um, mobility hasn't been so entrenched, but I also think it's going to be true for some of your tier one telcos, um, like the ones I mentioned earlier. You know, we'll all be looking and watching very closely to see what we can do together. Well, David, thank you. Between Microsoft using the cloud to push into healthcare, you guys pushing into telco, we are seeing the next phase of this cloud revolution. Now, I also spoke with a top dish exec, as I mentioned, about the deal. You can watch that interview with uh, Mark Ruan by scanning the QR code on your screen. Head over to the Tech Check LinkedIn page to get more details on this ORAN, Deirdre. Well, John, in other Amazon news, the company is expanding its palm, palm scanning payment system to a whole food store in Seattle, and it plans to roll out to other locations later. The technology debuted in September at about a dozen Amazon stores that allow shoppers to pay for items by placing their palm over a scanning device. The first time a shopper uses the kiosk, they have to insert a credit card with a link and link it, excuse me, to their palm print. Amazon says it hopes to sell the palm scanning technology to other companies, including retailers, stadiums, and office buildings. Carl, don't count out Amazon as a major player in payments either, is my takeaway here. Yeah, I think, you know, it sort of reminds me, John, uh, people have wondered whether or not the level of synergy between Amazon and Whole Foods has lived up to the hype on that day when that deal was first announced. Yeah. I just wonder if they're going to sell me gloves once they have my palm. I'm not sure I'm going to give it to them, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sand down your fingerprints. Uh, but guys, the, uh, the SPAC slump is not just impacting stock prices. The raw number of SPAC IPOs uh, this month massively lower compared to March. We've gone from the high 80s, low 90s, and even above 100 to 10 month to date, leaving many to wonder if the run is over. We'll talk about that. Coming up, a tech antitrust icon and now a hopeful FTC commissioner. We're going to break down what Lena Khan's confirmation could mean for big tech in a minute. Take a look at shares of Luminar Tech jumping more than 10% here in the last few minutes as the company adds two former Tesla and Intel executives to its ranks. This is a company that went public via SPAC last year. It specializes in LiDAR tech for autonomous vehicles, adding Alan Prescott as chief legal officer and Trey Campbells as VP of investor relations. We will continue to keep an eye on that stock for you, Carl. 
Uh, meantime, Dee, there's a big critic on uh, the Hill today. President Biden has nominated Lena Khan uh, to the FTC. She's known as a big critic of big tech and for her thesis on how Amazon theoretically could be broken up. Uh, she was at the Senate today for confirmation and was talked, uh, was asked about uh, the degree to which tech has had influence on media. Increasingly, news publishers are dependent on a few gatekeepers to disseminate their news and to disseminate their information. And so a single change in an algorithm can plummet readership and subscriptions for any publisher. And so I think there are some concerns generally there about the arbitrary whims and the arbitrary power that these firms can exercise. Um, I think there are also serious concerns about concentration within the digital ad market as well as vertical integration. Uh, The appointment does seem to indicate the White House will be taking a strong regulatory approach when it comes to tech. John, you know, they say personnel is policy. And between Khan and uh, Tim Wu now advising the White House, that's something big tech's going to watch. Yeah, and it would be awkward at this stage for the GOP to push back hard when at the same time they've been creating a a, a narrative about big tech uh, leaning too far to one side. So um, the texture uh, of this Confirmation hearing will be interesting for sure. Now, Mizuho naming Twilio a top pick. City adding a positive watch on Microsoft. Goldman reiterating its sell on Apple. For a look at today's biggest analyst calls, check out that story. Subscribe to CNBC Pro at CNBC.com slash pro. And we will be right back with today's Power Before we close the show, one more thing. Discord has reportedly ended deal talks with Microsoft instead exploring a potential IPO. Discussions between Microsoft and Discord had previously valued the chat startup at about $10 billion or more. This is just the latest deal to be put on hold for Microsoft in the social space after a bid to purchase a portion of TikTok last year. That never happened. Count Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, a fan of the company. Here he is being interviewed by CNBC contributor Casey Newton this week. What the Discord folks are doing, I think it's a a great product. Well, I think the team has done a very good job with it. I mean, I I think it's, um, you know, I think it's impressive technically. I think the product is is well implemented. I, I do think that the Discord folks have done a great job. We will see if more potential buyers emerge or if it IPOs. Hmm, John, I wonder if Zuckerberg has thought about buying Discord. Well, or better yet, when you've got as many messaging <laughs> platforms as he does, it's nice to point out somebody else who's succeeding in messaging. Less of an antitrust argument. Okay, for Crowdsource, we asked, what does Netflix need to do to boost subscriber growth? Jake saying Netflix should have their own smart TV that gives subscribers early access to Netflix originals. Paul Keith says VR content is the future. And another loyal viewer thinks to add games to the platform. Now, if you didn't write in today, don't worry. We will continue to crowdsource. Uh, Carl, Netflix probably doing just fine. Anybody who was on the fence over the past year probably ended up just getting Netflix. Uh, Yep, indeed. And uh, it's obviously off-session lows. Uh, We talked with Mark Mahaney at the top of the show, John, and uh, Stiefel also today going to a buy saying, look, a lot of this pull forward was expected. We were simply waiting for the quarter uh, that would make that evident. By the way, not a huge amount of tech earnings tonight. We'll get Chipotle, but tomorrow will be interesting as we work our way through AT&T and, of course, Intel tomorrow night. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.